Welcome to the Always Evolving Podcast. This is a podcast about living an awake, aware, conscious life. It's about recognizing that our lives are a product of the choices that we make, and the ripple effects of those choices impact our families, our communities, and the world. So let's choose wisely. Basically, if it helps to evolve us as individuals, then we will likely cover it at some point on this podcast. Because, after all, we are always evolving, and in all ways. I'm your host, Erica Boucher. We are here today with Kristen Schneider, a good friend of mine who I'm really excited to be interviewing. Kristen is one of the bendiest people you will ever meet. In addition to her (laughs) incredible flexibility, she brings with her a vast knowledge of Ayurveda, the sister science of yoga. So she's going to enlighten us on our doshas and how understanding these can transform the quality of our lives. So I have to say, Kristen, I've been a yogi for almost 20 years. I've been a yoga teacher for well over 15 years. And you're the person that I know who is more knowledgeable in Ayurveda than anybody else. Like you're the most knowledgeable person I know when it comes to Ayurveda. So when you put your book out there, I was really thrilled for you and, and for everybody that was going to be lucky enough to read it. So, so thank you for that. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. It was definitely a labor of love. And it was really inspired by the fact that when I started doing self-study, I couldn't afford school right away. The program was more expensive than I could do. So I went on Amazon and just bought all of the Ayurveda books I could, including textbooks. And the first three or four, I was obviously interested, but I was still confused. It was like I read book five and six just to get out of the confusion from books one through four. (laughs) And I thought there has to be a more concise way to do this. So really, my approach to writing the book was trying to keep it conversational and practical versus, you know, putting in all of the heady, esoteric kind of stuff. I wanted to strip that away and make it relevant. You did a great job because I have to say it it was always, you know, I understand Ayurveda is the sister science of yoga, and I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit more about that. But even hearing that term for all of those years, I really didn't have a full grasp of what it was, you really did make it so digestible and easy to understand and something that I could start using in my life. I remember at one point we were having a conversation and you helped to identify, which I think I already knew. I mean, I was somewhat familiar with Ayurveda and I I knew that I was a vata, pitta, pitta, vata mix of sorts when it comes to my doshas. And I remember talking about the fact that I was getting another dog And you kind of laughed and you said, oh, that's funny. That's all you need is more movement in your life. And that really like stuck with me because I'm like, she's right. I never even realized that a bunch of movement around me actually creates stress and anxiety. And so now here I am with these three dogs and these three cats and I love them. (laughs) And And there are times when there's, especially one of them's a puppy. So that, you know, that's a thing in and of itself. But There are times when there's just so much going on in one moment and I'm trying to accomplish something else and I just, my nervous system has reached its limits and I just have to yell, stop, 
and they they kind of know when mom reaches that reaches that point they just they go out the door and they go out in the backyard and they leave me alone for a little while but i never made that connection before so i think knowing that i might have made a different choice i mean i love them i don't want to to change anything but but i think when we know more about ourselves we can make smarter decisions about how to take care of ourselves in our day to day lives and in, in the choices that we make day to day so anyway, that's just my story of one little offhand comment that you made. And I was like, oh, that makes total sense. So based on that, and I, you know, I talked a little bit, I introduced the doshas and mentioned a couple of them, but most people, if they're not familiar with Ayurveda, they still have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Let's cue them in. <laughs> yes, please, please. Yeah, so basically, Ayurveda, it's a Sanskrit word. So a good way to think of pronouncing it is capital letter R, capital letter U, Veda. And Veda means wisdom or science, and R-U means life or longevity. So it's the science of life or the wisdom of longevity. Just like yoga, it's like 6,000 years old at this point, and it's really stood the test of time. And it's based on this idea that there are five fundamental universal elements, just like Chinese medicine uses these elements. So it's ether, which is space, air, like the wind, fire, like our bile or the sun, earth, like the ground, you know, soil, and then water, like a river, or our urine is a water or tears are water. So we all have all five elements in us, but in different you know, quantities. That's why we're all different. So the way they chose to organize it was in three major categories. And so the first one is first, just because we say it first, not because it's the most important, Vata, V-A-T-A. And Vata is ether and air or wind. So a lot of people really resonate with Vata because we live in a very Vata culture. It's quick moving, fast paced, always changing. So Vata is ether and air. These people mentally and emotionally tend to be sensitive. They tend to be imaginative, curious, creators. Um, They're into dance and art and music and movement and that sort of thing. They love to travel, really adaptable. I mean, I'm basically just describing you, Erica, (laughs) and myself. (laughs) Like, love to travel. Right. Um, So these are all wonderful things, but like anything, there's a light and a shadow side. The imbalance of Vata is if we don't manage it, if we don't know uh, what to look for to make decisions to keep it in balance, it will get out of balance. That's just natural. So out of balance, someone with a Vata constitution is prone towards anxiety, worry, fear, insomnia, forgetfulness, flightiness excessive talking, excessive thinking, just all of this movement. And then physically, these people tend to be small bones. So even if they gain weight, their skeleton is still rather slight. You'll notice like in their wrists and things like that, they're smaller bones. Um, They tend to either be really tall or really short, really curly hair, really straight. There's a lot of extremes in Vata even their energy. It's like they're either elated about life or like they're hiding in their room because they're overwhelmed and they've hit a wall with no energy. Mm. You'll see it in Vata's. There's like a 
like an asymmetry, like one eye's bigger or their lips tilt or their nose is off. So slightly asymmetrical. And that just plays to how vatas are hard to predict. They're spontaneous. They're sporadic. That's part of their adventurous quality is they'll just do something on a whim, which is why if I could give one treatment for someone with vata, it would be give yourself schedule, give yourself routine because it really grounds you. So that's vata, which we both, you and I have. And that's the most common imbalance. Yeah, that's the most common imbalance. Even people without a Vata constitution tend to be slightly ungrounded. And again, that's just because we're not connected to nature, the natural schedule of Mother Earth gives us of waking up with the sun and going to sleep with the moon. Instead, we're up with gadgets at all hours of the night. So that's why we're all little Vata imbalanced. The second one is really fun. I love pitta. Um, You and I, too, both have an affinity to pitta because while the vata is the creator, pitta really gives follow through and takes action. So vatas will start a lot of projects, but it's pitta who actually gets it done. So if you were all vata, you would have thought, oh, I want to write a book showing up naked. I want to start a yoga teacher training. I want to do a podcast but you wouldn't actually execute any of it. (laughs) We need Pitta. Pitta is ambitious, goal-oriented, strategic, organized, on time, that sort of thing. People who are full-on Pitta love roles of leadership and roles of prestige as well. So politicians, doctors, lawyers, something with some authority to it. Lots of entrepreneurs are definitely Pitta. So pitta, P-I-T-T-A, it's different from a pita chip, pitta. <laughs> um, pitta is all fire. You'll see it, you know, physically, these people will have a red hue to their skin or freckles or ember in their eyes or red hue to their hair. Not has to be, but if someone has red hair and freckles and sharp green eyes, you know, there's some pitta in there. You can just see it aesthetically. Out of balance, so if there's too much fire, right? If I go to a hot class and then go to the beach and I'm in the hot sun all day and then I chug a hot chocolate or hot coffee and then for dinner I have something that has sriracha all over it, this is so much fire, right? So then I'm going to get out of balance, which means I'm going to get a little irritable. It doesn't matter how nice I am or how nice someone is. That's not what this is about. Still, irritable, critical, frustrated, impatient. And if the person's really kind, they'll turn it inward, which doesn't make it any less dangerous. Mm. Um, So it's really important for pittas to keep their cool. They tend to be workaholics. So it's important for them to actually take vacations, you know, have some coconut water, just chill out, cool out a little bit, because otherwise they can get very tunnel vision, laser beam focus towards objective. And even though that's great, we have to have balance. That's what Ayurveda is all about, is about balance. So if I could give one, you know, piece of medicine for Pitta lifestyle-wise, it would be give yourself time to play and chill out. Mm, And then the final one, 
Yeah. Which is such a nice prescription, right? Like imagine going to your pharmacist and picking up a, me- uh, a prescription that says, chill out, go to the beach. <laughs> nice, but, but it's really important medicine, right? It's no less effective or oh, it may be even more effective than a lot of what we right, are right. so how wonderful would it be if that actually was being written down like you have permission in fact i'm telling you go to the beach go put your feet up go read a book go like you said sip on a coconut water at the beach and just chill yeah and that's exactly the prescription i give in in a lot of my consultations and it's no less sophisticated and no less advanced than taking a blood pressure medicine. Because you know what? If you do these things, you might not need blood pressure medicine. So it's really all about harmony and prevention is a big part of it. Right. And then the last piece, which neither of us have a lot of, which is why I tend to gravitate to people who are this constitution, is kapha. It's K-A-P-H-A, but it's pronounced like an F, kapha. So kapha people are earth and water. So the earth makes them really grounded, just really like they are the rocks of their friends and family. They're reliable, they're sincere, they're steady. The water element makes them really go with the flow. They don't get anxious like a vata. They don't get irritable like a pitta. They're just really like even tempered and mellow. They are like, to me, they're like teddy bears. They're like Mm. my grandma when I used to crawl up and sit in her chair and like her voluptuous arms just wrap around me. I just feel safe. That was a very kapha feeling. And to me, kaphas are really nurturing. They're often caretakers. They make great nurses, amazing parents. They're really patient. They make great teachers. Also, they tend to be um, like executive assistants and work in admin because they don't have the creativity to, you know, be innovators necessarily like Vatas. They don't have the managerial like knack like a Pitta does. They're not drawn towards that. What they have is incredible endurance and loyalty. So they make the best wingman. You want a kapha by your side because they're going to keep you relaxed and on track and focused. And they won't leave your side, which is really nice. Because of the earth and water qualities, these are the heavier elements, much heavier than ether, air, or fire. They can struggle with water retention like edema or gout, weight gain, bloating, And then, you know, all the weight-related issues like high cholesterol and diabetes, type 2 diabetes and things like that. So they really have to watch their food more than the other constitutions. Physically, looking at them, they're more voluptuous. They have fuller hair, longer eyelashes, bigger, fuller eyes. So many of the kaphas in my life look like precious moment dolls. Do you know those dolls with the big doughy eyes and the smooth doughy skin and oh just beautiful (laughs) (laughs) they are and they and they retain their youthfulness for longer vatas tend to wrinkle really fast because of their dryness pittas tend to wrinkle fast because they gesticulate and um worry more they're more charismatic with their faces so they'll get like a scowl and stuff like that Whereas kappas, I mean, at 60, you think they're 34. I mean, because they just look stress-free. 
And really, if I could give lifestyle advice for kapha, it would be to stay motivated and stimulated. And that's because kapha's out of balance will just be Netflix and chill all the time, which can lead to, you know, complacency and even depression because they can just isolate themselves on the couch if, if left to their own devices. So they need to stay motivated and active. So that's kind of like summation of the three. <laughs> that was a lot. Sorry. No, it's great. It's it's great. So a pitta person may not be so well served by a hot yoga class, but a kapha person might because they want to build some heat and get some energy moving. So that might be a good. That's ex- yes, that is exactly right. And there's a section in my book that talks about this, about what classes are good. And in fairness, I mean, yoga is a good form of, you know, mind-body exercise for all three doshas. But if you're getting specific, yes, hot yoga would best serve a kapha, whereas yin yoga is really what kaphas want to do, but they would be much better in an active class. So you kind of want to use basically opposites to create balance is the main kind of principle of Ayurveda. So if I'm always hot as a pitta, eating spicy food and going to a hot class isn't going to balance me out. I would be better off having cooling foods like a cucumber salad with cilantro and then going to a yoga class done in AC. Vatas want to do everything quick and light. Everything, they're like little squirrels or bunny rabbits, right? (laughs) So they want to eat a salad or a granola bar really fast and then run to the next thing. They, on the other hand, would be better having warm, moist food like sweet potato and oatmeal. Sit down, try to eat it slowly rather than going to a really fast vinyasa class with loud music and quick flows they would be better off going to something a little slower and more structured, like a really solid Hatha class or even a Bikram class. It's warm and steady. So that's kind of how you can overlay the principles. Yeah, and it's perfect. When I look at your book, the, the, the word, if I had to sum it up in a word, if, to really like, this is what pops out at me, it's the word balance. And I think that's really important for a lot of us because. I think we we tend to get out of balance and we can do that for a short period of time, but it's definitely not sustainable. And then a lot of times we start looking for things to numb the signs that we're out of balance rather than bring ourselves back into balance. And I think it's great that we're able to identify, okay, so out of these three doshas, you're probably going to be primarily one or two of them. And knowing this, these are the things you can do to help keep yourself into balance. Because if you, if you get out of balance, this is what that's going to look like. And so you specifically know there are specific signs to look for when things start to get out of balance. Like you said, the irritability or the forgetfulness for vatas. So that's very helpful because I think as a society, we are looking for more balance. Oh, absolutely. I like how you state that. Yeah. We are definitely all in need of balance, but if we don't take time out of our days to carve it out and make it a priority, it will fall to the wayside because not to get like political, obviously, but our society is run on 
ego and capitalism, which basically means do more, do it better, and do it now. And that's not a harmonious mindset. That's really a mindset of fear rather than love, whereas love would teach us you are enough, you are worthy, slow down, enjoy. And if we started to do more of that, we would feel better. But we almost have to program that and really seed that into our own lives because television and media and everything else isn't going to do that. I mean, I don't think your boss is going to call you tomorrow and say, hey, darling, like you've been doing a great job. You seem a little tense. I want you to take the day and give yourself a coconut oil massage and you know, sweetheart, I, you've been doing great. I want to give you a raise. And will you take an Epsom salt bath tonight? <laughs> like, no way. You know what I mean? Like, that's not going to happen. So we have to do that. And, and it's not selfish. A lot of people, you said balance, which I think is true, sums up my book. And another one I've heard a lot is self-care. Mm-hmm. Your book reminded me about self-care. And I think there are some misconceptions with balance and self-care in our society that if we make that a priority, we're making everything else secondary, which means we're selfish. And I can't highlight enough that there's nothing selfish about taking care of yourself. For example, yesterday, I overextended myself and I was able to plow through and make it through the day. But at the end of the day, It was a wonderful day and I was in tears and hit a wall. And it was simply because I tapped into all of my reserves and I only left myself fumes at the end of the day. Mm. And luckily, I know Ayurveda, so I know, okay, give yourself a massage, have some tea, read a book, go to bed early, you can fill up, you can refuel. But nine years ago, I wouldn't have known that which means then I wake up the next day being useless to everyone around me. That's selfish. Right, Running right. yourself so ragged that you're useless to everyone. It's, it's really, I think, a community service to take good care of yourself. I Even on a bigger picture of insurance. And yeah, so, so I think self-care and balance are really bedrock points. I'm having this conversation with clients and students and myself a lot. Because the belief is that self-care is selfish. Because you're right, our society is kind of conditioned to, to think that we're only valuable if we're productive, if we're producing something. And so people get this idea sure. that, that self-care is selfish. And I'm always saying, and again, I'm reminding myself of this every time I say it, that our relationship with ourselves is the most important relationship we have because every other relationship is only going to be as good as that one. So because yes. if, we're, if we're not taking care of ourselves and we're not respecting ourselves, then like you said, we're going we're gonna to come across as irritable or impatient, or we're just not going to give it our best. We're not going to listen as well. We're not going to be as compassionate. We're not going to show up in the same way that we would if we were coming from a place of balance and self-care. And so you're right. It is a community service. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, I never said it that way. Yes. And what you said is so spot on. And you know, something that strikes me is that there's a difference between aesthetic self-care, like going to get your nails done and your hair done and tanning. Not that those aren't important, but that's a very different level of self-care than the level of self-care for your nervous system and your soul. 
And that's what Ayurveda is talking about. We're not talking about, you know, go get your nails done and spend a day at the spa, self-care, quote unquote. We're talking about ground yourself, be in nature, make sure that your soul feels fulfilled. That's the kind of self-care that I'm trying to, you know, get out a little more. Mm-hmm. And then what you were talking about, how if we don't take care of ourselves, then we run around anxious or irritable or whatever. To a larger degree, that energy is contagious. So the more we can foster balanced energy within us, it's an act of goodwill for people around us because it's contagious, right? If you didn't take care of yourself and entered this conversation moody, it would come off on me and then I would be moody. And then we both hang up this conversation. We're both moody. And everybody who listened to it then feels moody. But that's (laughs) not what happened. That's not what happened at all, right? You take good care of yourself. You entered this conversation with enthusiasm and peace. Now, because of that, I also feel that way. And then listeners feel that way. And it's a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. It's so much bigger than we think. This podcast is brought to you by my book and life coaching program, Showing Up Naked. Showing Up Naked is a metaphor for living so authentically, it's like you're showing up naked. It's about breaking free of the social conditioning, becoming comfortable in our own skins, liberated from the need to ask for permission to be ourselves. Find out more at showingupnaked.com. And by Empath Yoga, built upon and including the Showing Up Naked program, the 200-hour Empath Yoga lifestyle training is for those who want to teach yoga or simply make yoga a more integral part of their daily lives. Learn more at empathyoga.com. It's so true. I think of all the choices that we make, that every choice we make, we are creating a ripple effect with that choice. And so why not start from a place of self-care? Why not start at home? where we have the most ability to make a difference and starting with our relationship with ourselves. So I'm so glad that you're teaching that and that more and more that message is getting out there because I, I talk to people all the time who feel like it's guilty. And recently I had a conversation with a, a coaching group with several women and they were all saying about how much guilt they were feeling. They realized they were feeling about doing this for themselves, taking the time to read the book, taking the time to go to yoga and all, and all of that because they're a wife and they're a mother and they have a, a business. And I said, what if you flip that around on its head? And what if you said, it's because I'm a wife that I'm doing this for myself. Mm, because yes. I'm a mother, I'm doing this. It's because I have a business that I'm doing this because I know everything that I am creating, every thought, every word, everything that's coming from me is having an impact on the world around me. And the only way I can really be sure that I'm being conscious of the effect that I'm having is if I slow down and I have that very real, honest, deep, authentic relationship with myself. So important. It's such an important message. I don't think it can be stressed enough. Yeah, I agree so much. Yeah, everything we do is an extension of who we are. And if we don't care of, take care of who we are, then we become what's around us. And that's out of our control. So we want to, yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about food? You know, I was just going to say, this is a perfect <laughs> time talking about an extension of who we are. This is a perfect time to talk about healthy bowels <laughs> and Ayurvedic oh, nutrition. Yes. 
it is so funny. I am probably the only professional that gets poop emojis sent to her in a professional context. I love <laughs> because it. Are you beta? Yes. Ayurveda, well, all Eastern medicine, all ancient medicine will agree that your digestive center is the center of your health. So Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine, medicine be thy food. Chinese medicine says disease enters through the mouth. Ayurveda says without right food, medicine is of no need. With right food, medicine is of no use. So basically, any form of medicine over 5,000 years old is telling you pay attention to your gut. Mm-hmm. And of course, part of the gut is your bowel movement. So really knowing your bowel movement is a great way to assess what's going on with your gut. Vatas tend to be constipated. Pittas tend to have loose stools or heartburn or acid reflux, things like that. And kaphas tend to have slower motility in general and definitely milkier digestive systems. So Haryuveda teaches us, you know, most of us in the conscious living community know that we want to eat mostly whole foods. We want to try, try to stay away from processed and packaged foods as much as possible, maybe eat a little less meat. These kinds of things are basically agreed upon in the conscious community and definitely spreading beyond that. But Ayurveda teaches us that just because something is healthy doesn't mean it's right for you constitutionally. Mm. So really simply put, vatas should eat mostly warm, moist, spiced food and try to reduce cold, raw, dry, snacky food. Because would going back to vata- benefit from a raw foods diet then? No, it will, it can definitely make their nervous system really wired feeling because it's not grounding. Those foods are so light that it doesn't anchor them. Mm. Um, Vatas tend to always be cold with, you know, kind of off circulation. So cold food doesn't agree with them as well. They want to eat nuts, granola and salad all day long, but that's not what brings them the most, most balance. They would do much better with lots of root vegetables. Lots of hot grains like basmati rice and quinoa, lots of soups and stir fries, really grounding food. So they can eat the same types of food. It just needs to be warm. Because of their dryness, they do better with moist like stir fries and soups. Because of their dryness, they do better with oily foods like adding some ghee or coconut oil to their oatmeal or things like that. Then pittas, pittas want to eat garlic and onion and big, you know, kind of Italian meals, Mexican spicy food. They're attracted to this, but they actually should have less. They do really well with bitter, astringent, sweet foods. So bitters are like greens, astringents are going to be like beans, and then sweet foods like um, pears and watermelon and coconut, things like that. And the reason is, I mean, this is way more than one, you know, conversation, but basically every taste has a psychological component. So pittas tend to be fiery, pungent, right? That's that ambition that can turn into aggression. That's the passion. Whereas 
sweet kind of softens that. It kind of hugs the aggression a little bit. Mm. So sweet foods really mellow pitches out. So for example, say you have a desk job and you're on a conference call and it's a pretty heated, intense discussion. You know, when you hang up, you're going to have to hit the books of analytical negotiations and things like that. It would be smart to just pause, turn around from your computer, sit there and drink a coconut water, breathe, and then reapproach the discussion. And you'll feel so much more peaceful and calm about it versus reactionary because that coconut water is nice and cooling. And then again, not to get too deep, but basically pitas tend to have gallbladder and liver issues. That's one of the main areas or sites of pitta. And those are really hot organs. So bitter is a really cooling taste. So by eating kale and dandelion greens and arugula and things like that, it helps to cool the body from like a quality perspective. Um, which is really detoxifying for the gallbladder and the liver, which are areas where pittas tend to have problems. Let me just interject here. So, because I'm I'm already thinking, okay, how do I make this fit? Because I obviously have a lot of pitta as well as vata. And some of those greens are, like you said, they're bitter greens. That's the whole point. But we also like sweet. So maybe there's a way to dress those bitter greens up to make them more palatable so that maybe some some sort of honey dressing or something that makes it more palatable for us? Yeah, I love that idea. So Ayurveda teaches us that we're supposed to have all six tastes in every meal, sweet, sour, salty, pungent, which means spicy, bitter, and astringent. If we're missing any one of these tastes, we'll have a craving for it after. That's why when we have, you know, a bag of chips that are salty, then we want a cookie that's sweet. And then we want a coffee that's bitter. And then we want, you know what I mean? We keep chasing taste. So even for, like you said, pittas who are supposed to have bitter greens, we're not asking them to only eat a handful of bitter greens. It's mixed with a balanced plate that has everything. So say you have cooked bitter greens, but you cook it in ghee, which has a sweetness to it. And then you put on top of your green wilted salad, a cup of quinoa, which has kind of sweet undertone. And a few dried uh, cranberries, which have a little bit of sweet and astringent. And then you can put a little bit of black pepper and a nice big squeeze of lemon. Now you have all six tastes in a really balanced meal. But if I were to break down the energetics and the taste, it's mostly bitter, astringent, and sweet, which is what we want for a pizza. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great. I, and and this, there is such a wealth of knowledge in this, all of this that you're talking about. And most of this you cover to some degree in your book, right? Oh, absolutely. There isn't anything we've talked about that's not in the book. And the book is written how we're talking. It's really conversational. There are graphs and charts and meal plans and recipes and definitely really structured information. But the flow of the narrative is very conversational. One of my friends was like, I love reading it because it's like you're reading it out loud to me. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that. I can totally see that. And I, I do. I love how conversational it is. It covers a lot of ground. 
I want to, in fact, I have a few notes here of things that I wanted to make sure to talk with you about. And you kind of alluded to yeah. this a little bit, the, the master clock. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So basically, Earth, it runs on a diurnal kind of, you know, like it runs on a clock. We are supposed to organize our lives according to the circadian rhythm of sunrise and sunset. So the tides function on this, the moon cycle. There are so many cues that there is a natural rhythm and order to life. And it really wasn't until the last 100 years and definitely an intensity of that in the last 25 years that technology has become so prevalent that we've forgotten about the master clock. So basically, Ayurveda suggests that we should wake up and go to bed around the same time each day. And really, for billions of years, that's what human beings were doing. I mean, think about, you know, when there's a hurricane and our power goes out, do we stay up at 3 a.m.? No, because we have no technology to keep us amused at 3 a.m. We just go to sleep. That's what humans have always done. So we're supposed to wake up with the sun, which is usually around 6, 6.30 a.m., and then go to bed when the moon is up. So that's around 10 p.m. So that gives us just a natural structure for sleep, which is really important for vatas, but also important because our organs regenerate at a specific time, and it's always during nocturnal hours. So if we're awake at midnight, 1, 2 a.m., our adrenals don't reset. Our liver doesn't get to reset and repair because we're up working it versus resting it. The other thing about the master clock is our eating cycles. There are so many traps, uh, trends, and fads now with diets and everything. And that's not what Ayurveda is. It's a lifestyle. It's not a diet. So in regards to food, you know, a lot of it is intuitive. Listen to your body. But it does follow the sun. So our Agni, our digestive fire, is basically a microcosm or a miniature version of the sun. So it teaches us that the sun is low in the atmosphere, morning and night, which means breakfast and dinner can be a little lighter because our miniature sun, our digestive fire, which is hydrochloric acid and bile and enzymes and everything else, isn't at its peak in the morning or evening. So those can be lighter meals, whereas the sun is highest midday. So that means lunch should be our biggest meal. So waking up and going to bed with the sun having, you know, meals around the same time each day with lunch is the biggest. Those are the main things. And then it goes into really interesting specifics about the master clock, that each dosha has a particular time of day that it governs. So 2 a.m. to uh, 6 a.m. is vata time of day. And remember, Vata is light, creative, intuitive. So that's why so many people wake up at 3 a.m. with this bright idea or a worry on their mind. Oh, that makes total they, sense. I've been waking up. I've been working on this new project, and I've been waking up every day around 4, 4.30, not feeling worried or stressed or anxious, but so much creativity coming through where I have to get up and go and write and journal. And it's really good stuff. And I'm like, why is this coming through now? That makes total sense. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my favorite teachers, 
Wayne Dyer wrote an entire book at 3 a.m. every day, just wrote at 3. And it's basically that the veil between the earth and the cosmos, the ethereal realms, is said to be thinner at those times of day. So insights from the cosmos and, you know, those creative stars come down to us. Even Rumi said, when you wake in the middle of the night, don't go back to sleep. Those whispers are like God trying to talk to you. I kind of butchered the quote, but it's definitely to that, something to that effect. <laughs> yeah, so, so those are really special hours. And then from 6 to 10 in the morning is kapha time of day. And like we were talking about, kapha has strength and endurance. So those are great times to work out. Those are great times to plow through a bunch of laborious chores, you know, vacuum and all that kind of stuff, get all of that done. And then 10 to 2 are pitta hours. So that's when we want to have the big lunch. That's when we want to, you know, take tests and do analytical work and, you know, anything like accounting and paying our bills and all of that kind of stuff. It's a great time to do that in the middle of the day. And then the clock repeats itself. So two to six in the afternoon is Vata again, which is why people tend to crash, you know, around four. So that's a great time to just rest, even if it's, you know, just doing five minutes of meditation at four in the afternoon. That'll give you a second wind. And then again, 6 to 10 p.m. is kapha. Now it's the heaviness of kapha. So that's when we want to wind down and feed into kapha's heavy energy. It's trying, it's the earth trying to tell us it's time to go to sleep, rest. And then between 10 and 2 in the morning, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. in the morning, it's pitta time of day, which is why if we plow through being tired at 8 or 9 and stay up until 11, then we get a second wind because now pitta's kicked in. Now we're, you know, writing dissertations and we're reorganizing the house and we're raiding the refrigerator and everything because pizza's up again. That's why we really want to go to bed before 10, 1030 because we don't want to be awake in those pizza hours. That's where night eating comes in. That's where a lot of stress can happen. Mm, so much good information. Every time I listen to you talk about this topic, I feel like I understand some of my tendencies a little bit more because just in just in that last statement of yours, you know, usually every afternoon I start to really crash around three, four o'clock and just need to rest. And again, you know, in the early morning, that's when I'm definitely most productive. So it makes sense based on this whole cycle that you're talking about. That's just life. It's just my natural cycle trying to help me stay in balance. If I choose to follow the signs and pay attention and listen and flow with that, things work out nicely. It's when I throw things out of whack that I, you know, I might be able to do that for a day or two, but eventually I'm going to fall out of balance. Things are going to start to fall apart. Things are going to start to not look and feel good. And it's going to have a negative impact on my life, on my work, on my relationships. So it's really such a beautiful way of helping people to understand themselves a little bit better and how to take care of themselves. Because you're right, if we're out there looking for the diet that's going to do it, that's not necessarily taking into consideration our constitution. Because I'm, as we've talked about, primarily vata, vata, pitta, and I've done raw food cleanses for 10 days. And, and 
that doesn't always spend great for my digestive system. You know, my body doesn't always seem to know exactly what to do with all that raw food. But I kept telling myself, but this is a really good clean diet. <laughs> this is what you want to be doing. So it's wise to go to make our choices based on our body's constitution rather than whatever diet happens to be the fad in the moment. So that's really important, I think, for people to understand about themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. Basically, Ayurveda is teaching us to listen to our internal compass and not fight nature. Nature doesn't fight itself. Why are we fighting ourselves? Like, it's senseless struggle that we don't need to put ourselves through. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Putting ourselves through it until we take a break from it. You know, it's like when you finally go on vacation. And about day three of the week vacation, you relax and you're like, this is what relax feels like. It's like we didn't know we weren't relaxed right. until we actually experience it, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> or I'm that way. <laughs> I know. I totally relate to that. I've definitely been there. I had no idea how stressed I was. Oh my goodness. It's like you said, three, four days in and I feel like a different person. So Exactly. So one more question I want to ask you is... When I work with people, I use the chakras as a system for understanding ways that our lives are or are not in balance and how to bring things back into balance. So the chakra system really makes sense to me. How does that relate to Ayurveda? And and do you use the two of them together? Do you work with them together? Yes, yes. So, you know, I meet clients where they're at, and I try to keep the language aligned with their degree of understanding and their degree of comfortability. So sometimes I don't use a lot of Sanskrit words. I don't even use the word pitta and vata a lot. Sometimes I'll say your fire is up. You know, it depends on the person, but the chakras are definitely part of Ayurveda. There's a small section in my book, I want to say 10 or 15 pages about the chakras. Like the root chakra definitely correlates with kapha, right? Grounded, loyal, secure, that safety, you know, connected. Whereas like the third chakra, the fire, the ambition, your self-esteem, your drive, your willpower, your confidence definitely aligns with pizza. And then just for example, the Ajna, the sixth third eye chakra, definitely aligned with Vata being, you know, intuitive and sensitive and having different perspectives and following that intuition and creating and connecting with source and all of that. So there's definitely an alignment. It's not a one plus one equals two kind of equation, mm-hmm. but there are definitely correlations. And I definitely know, you know, if someone is all kapha, most likely their root chakra is pretty good. It's probably their third chakra that needs to be, you know, stimulated a little. But right. I don't make those assumptions because everyone's different. But Yes, I love that you brought up chakras because I've been teaching it and writing about it a lot just this week. Because, you know, it's so funny when something is such a big part of your life, you assume it to be everyone's knowledge and frame of mind. And it wasn't until I was talking to a few other yoga teachers and they literally, other than the word chakra, didn't know 
the mind-body connection and the way our emotions manifest as disease in these areas of the body. And it was like I was speaking with several heads. Yeah, yeah. And so I was kind of flabbergasted just in a way that I'm grateful. It inspired me to start talking about it more. Don't assume that people know. And also not to, you know, place my opinions and beliefs on anyone, but just to share openly. Because really the backbone to all of this is self-knowledge and self-healing. Yeah, it's education. And and that's a gift to be offered to people. Right, right. And and chakras are definitely a way that we ourselves can become our own, you know, healers. Mm. So I'm glad you're you're talking about chakras and and spreading that too in a really um rich and authentic way. Because I'm not gonna lie, I sometimes don't want to use the word chakra because it's thrown around in this new age, you yeah. know, fluffy way. And it's not. It's it's really sophisticated knowledge once we get to the main concepts of it. Oh, Who cares about the, yeah. you know? You're absolutely right. In, my, in the Empath Yoga teacher training, we spend an entire day on each of the seven chakras. We spend an entire day understanding the root chakra, uh, everything about it before we move on to the second one. And, you know, understanding also that those seven chakras, that's not, that's not all of it, but this is, these are the seven that we're going to talk about here. So we at least have that basic knowledge of understanding, because you're right. I think, I think people without a real understanding of the chakras and what a beautiful system that is for understanding the body and the energy, it has become just a, like a fluffy new age word. And, and I definitely want to change that because it's so powerful along with everything that you're talking about. And they go together very, very well. So I'm thrilled that you're writing about all of this. Oh, thank you. A third book, I think it's going to be about energy medicine. Nice. I can't wait. I can't wait. So let's talk about your first book, which is the one that we've been really talking about a lot here today is called Your Life is Medicine, Ayurveda for Yogis. And that's not just for people that are practicing yoga or teaching yoga, but anybody who's on a conscious living path, right? That wants to know and live a conscious lifestyle. Where can they find this book? So you can get it on my website, which is wellblend.com, W-E-L-L-B-L-E-N-D-S.com or on Amazon. Um, And it's only shipped, I think, in North America right now. And you also have a variety of other products. In fact, I have to tell you just this week, maybe two nights ago, we put some vegetables, cauliflower and mushrooms and zucchini and stuff like that into the instant pot, which is one of my favorite things these days, along with some coconut milk and a kind of a heaping tablespoon of your agni, which is the, I'll talk a little bit about that, but it was so incredibly good that I'm now convinced we're going to make something with that stuff every week, some variation of that every week. It was so delicious. Oh, yay. I'm glad. And your meal sounds amazing. Yeah, (laughs) it sounds so good. Agni is just, it's a a blend of cooking spices. And the word Agni means digestive fire. So the point of the blend of spices is to promote a solid metabolism, digestion of nutrients, to promote elimination, just to keep your gut healthy. But more importantly, it tastes 
so good. I mean, it really just tastes like a curry. So Mm -hmm. it has a nice balance of heating and cooling so that it doesn't aggravate any dosha. So it has ginger and cinnamon and black pepper, a little bit of cayenne, fenugreek, coriander, cumin. It's really a nice blend. And you can just like throw it in soups or in omelets on stir fry. My brother likes to make fun because he knows he thinks I'm like a hippie. And he's like, mm, that Agni was so good on your on my bacon and I wrapped it around the pork chop. <laughs> all in good fun. But it is, yeah. no, no kidding aside, it is also really good on chicken and fish and whatever else you eat. There are no rules with it. It's not like, oh, I have to be a whole foods vegan to eat this. No, not, not at all. I love that about you. I love that you're not extreme. You're encouraging everybody to eat what feels right for you. Try to bring it into balance, little changes here and there. That's something that people can hear. Otherwise, people get panicked. That's not for me. (laughs) Right, right, right. I am not, you know, preaching from a pedestal by any stretch. I grew up on, you know, Pop-Tarts and Lean Cuisines and I was living on, you know, salad with fat-free dressing and lots of cereal, including Frosted Flakes through my 20s. I mean, it's not like I grew up on like only homemade meals and I eat like a saint. Not at all. I just know that the little changes that I make with nutrition through Ayurveda has just made me feel so much more alive. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah you just start somewhere. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Always Evolving. Please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, let me know by giving me a five-star rating and help our ranking so we can reach more people who might be inspired by our message. Until next time, remember, our lives are a product of the choices that we make. Choose wisely.